0: So last week, uh, last week, Slim gave a sermon about justice. Slim loves doing sermons about justice. Um, I love sermons like this one. So I'm very, very excited for this text this morning. Slim also began with a movie reference, the movie Rushmore, some movie in the late 90s. I know a lot of y'all like, weren't even born in the late 90s. Um, but I'm gonna start with another reference to Avengers Infinity War. So in, so in Avengers Infinity War, Uh, Thanos, the villain, has this elaborate plan to gather all of the Infinity Stones in the Infinity Gauntlet in order to kill half of the universe in order to save the rest of it. There's probably a much better way to do that, but that's his plan. So, there's a scene near the end of the movie where Thanos is about to kill Iron Man and in order to stop him Doctor Strange gives him the Time Stone which which feels in the grand scheme of things to not be a very smart thing to do. In fact, after that, Thanos only has one more stone that he needs to get all the stones that he wants. And so Tony Stark, Iron Man, turns to him and asks him, why did you do that? And Dr. Strange responds, we're in the end game now. And, and, and in that line, Dr. Strange is suggesting that what really matters is what happens at the end of the game. It's true of that blockbuster movie, but it's also true of us now. What matters, what, what really matters is what happens at the end. And for the next month, we're, we're looking at the end of the lengthy book of Isaiah, much of which, this, this last part of Isaiah, a lot of it is concerned with the end of time, the new heavens and the new earth, the state, of affair, the state of affairs that God is going to usher in. And so when we look at this chapter in light of the rest of the book, I want us to see two things. I want us to see the world as God intends for it to be, and God's people as God intends them to be. So, so, the, so the people of God have been going through a lot through the book of Isaiah. These are people who have been going through a violent and exploitative exile at the hands of a big bad empire, Babylon. And so they've lost their land, they've lost their temple, and they've lost their king. And they feel like they've lost their identity, but the Lord in this chapter is telling them restoration is coming, and the shape of that restoration is going to be really important. So I'm going to over the course of this sermon, I'm going to read through this whole chapter, but I want you to hear it if you have to close your eyes as you hear it, to visualize this future that's being laid in front of the people of God. Verses, verses 1 to 3, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and and kings to the brightness of your dawn. So the people who were scattered by an oppressor are not only promised that they're going to be reunited, but they're also told that everyone is going to flock to them. But why? Well, let's read on. Verses 5 to 9. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All Kedar's flocks will be gathered to you. The rams of Nibiot will serve you. They will be accepted as offerings on my altar, and I will adorn my glorious temple. Who are these that fly along the clouds like doves to their nests? Surely the islands look to me. In the lead are the ships of Tarshish, bringing your children from afar with their silver and gold to the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Wealth on the seas, riches of the nations, camels from Midian, gold and incest from, 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 from Sheba, flocks from Kedar, rams from Nebaiot, the, the ships of Tarshish with their silver and gold. All of these nations that are named are enemies of Israel. And what this is an, this is an account of them bringing everything that they have to Israel. Interesting. Verses 10 to 12. Foreigners will rebuild your walls, and their kings will serve you. Though in anger I struck you, in favor I will show you compassion. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut, day or night, so that people will bring you the wealth of the nations. Their kings led in triumphal procession. For the nation or kingdom that will not serve you will perish. It will be utterly ruined. And verse 14 summarizes this scene very, very well. The children of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. What, what Isaiah is pressing in this first half of this chapter is this. Redemption is coming, and it's going to be a radical reversal of fortunes. It's also going to be a radical reshaping of the entire world. All life in this new heavens and new earth is going to be focused on a city. A city that would be called Zion. The only light in the, in the world is going to be focused on this city and on its people. And everyone from around the world is going to bring their best to this city. As a matter of fact, this city is going to be like a cultural center where, 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 where the best that human beings have worked with their hands will be on display and for the use of everyone present. And so unlike a world where oppression and hoarding rule the day, This world is going to be a world of robust and radical sharing. Philosopher and economist Adam Smith wrote this book back in 1776. It's called Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. It's basically an outline on how capitalism works. But one of the things that he presses in that book is that most of us make our decisions in our own self-interest. And so it might make sense to build an economy that harnesses that for the good of the most people. That's, that's the stated logic of our current economy. But unfortunately, when we look a little deeper, especially historically, what, 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 what we find is that the primary cause of the wealth of nations, especially the United States and Europe, the source is theft, theft and exploitation. The history of colonialism and imperialism is a history of murder, of genocide, of the theft of people and of resources for the sake of the greed of the few. And contrary to this picture, which is a picture that the people of Israel would actually have been familiar with because, remember, they're under imperial rule, but as opposed to that, Isaiah frames a picture of a world where the people of God don't gain by going out and taking. They gain by invitation. That is, the people of the world see what they have, the presence of the living god and they bring everything that they've got to that space this is a world where the overwhelming gravitational center of existence is not greed but god not not mammon money and profit but yahweh and Isaiah goes on, and I want—I want to read verses fifteen to twenty-two, which I—which I love. I want them to—I want them to wash over you. I want it. I want them to embed themselves in your spirit, because I deeply believe that we can only continue in the present if we are filled by the future. So, so I want you to—I want you to listen to this real quick. Verses fifteen to twenty-two. Although you have been forsaken and hated. With no one traveling through, I will make you the everlasting pride and the joy of all generations. You will drink the milk of nations and be nursed at royal breasts. Then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring you gold and silver in place of iron. Instead of wood, I will bring you bronze and iron in place of stones. I will make peace your governor. And well-being your ruler. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Then all your people will be righteous, and they will possess the land forever. They are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands for the display of my splendor. The least of you will become a thousand, the smallest a mighty nation. I am the Lord in its time. I will do this swiftly. I want you to hear this, brothers and sisters. The Lord is telling his people through Isaiah— That not only is the world going to be different when he works his final redemption, but the people are going to be different too. Go back to verses 17 and 18. I will make peace your governor and well-being your ruler. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. When we think about walls and gates in ancient cities, they're meant for security, for safety. And God is revealing a future where security is not necessary because there are no enemies left. But perhaps the best part of this is actually verses 19 to 21. And it's interesting because he's like, it, it looks like just Isaiah just repeats himself. It's that good. The, the, the sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your sun will be your glory. In case you didn't get it, he says it again. Your sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Then all your people will be righteous, and they will possess the land forever i want you to imagine a picture of this restoration that the people have lost their land they lost their temple and they lost their king and what god is saying is that they're going to get it all back their land is going to be restored but it's not going to be a nation it's going to be a city jerusalem otherwise known as zion and at the center of that city is not going to be a temple there's not going to be any need for a temple house for the lord because the lord is just going to be in the whole city how we'll see that in a second and what kind of king are they are they going to get a king back well yeah they're going to get a king back but they're going to get the king that they were always supposed to have their everlasting light their glory is going to be the one true king god himself land temple king they're going to get it all And this is what we mean when we use the language of the kingdom of God. It means space, it means people, and it means a king that rules us. And this is the future that's promised to us as the people of God, a personal, communal, and cosmic future, a future where the people are different, a future where the people are made righteous. It's a a future where communities are different, where communities are communities of of comprehensive justice, joy, peace, and prosperity. It's a a future where the world is going to be different, where, where there won't be any more tears, any more death, no more stress, no more pain. All there will be is the presence of God and the joy of being with his people. And this is our failure. We don't think about that future very often. It's very easy for us to get caught up in the day-to-day and to forget how much our future ought to shape our present. But there are a few texts of the New Testament that I think remind us of what we need to, of, of how we need to think about these things. And one of them is 2 Corinthians 1.20, where Paul says this, For no matter how many promises God has made, They are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. So I want you to bear with me here. Because one of the things that Paul is saying is that in Christ, personally, you have the fulfillment of every single promise of God. Which means that Jesus, there's something about Jesus that fulfills the promises of Isaiah 60. But what? And when this hit me, oh, it hit me like a year or so ago, through the work of, of, the, of the Spanish theologian Antonio Gonzalez and the Latin American evangelical Rene Padilla. And, when, I, and when, this, when this hit me, it, 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 it revolutionized my Christianity. I want you to think back to Jesus' words in the beginning of Mark. And listen closely. Mark 1, verse 15. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent, and believe the good news. This is Jesus going to Galilee and saying, as Dr. Strange did, we're in the end game now. In Jesus, the kingdom has come. In Jesus' birth, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension, the kingdom has arrived. God reigns now in Christ. Now. See, we have a lot of conversations about the now and the not yet the already and the not yet. How many of these promises are are we waiting for and how many of them can we experience now? Well, if we listen to 2 Corinthians and if we listen to Jesus, what what, 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 what we're hearing is that one of the things that Christ's incarnation and his ministry reveal is that we can actually experience and taste all of these things now in Christ. Padilla says it this way, the gospel is in its essence the good news that when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son in whom and through whom the Old Testament hope is fulfilled. Said another way, Isaiah 60 is fulfilled in Jesus. What does that mean? Well, it means that the restoration of individuals, the restoration of communities, and the restoration of the world has already begun. And the church is supposed to be not just a herald of that mission and that message, but an actual physical place where those things are actually present. This is supposed to be the place where the Spirit redeems people from the consequences and the power of sin. This is supposed to be the space where the, where the Spirit morally transforms us and equips us to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to walk according to the Spirit. This is supposed to be the place where relationships are reinforced, where intimate friendships are common, where where we're a body, where when one suffers, all suffer, and when one rejoices, all rejoice. This is supposed to be the place where we mobilize against the injustices of the world, no knowing that we're going to continue to fight them out there, but that we can actually eliminate them in here. See, this is the place where, because we're all on the same page about Jesus being our Lord and no one else, we can actually become a community of peace, of justice, of love, free of poverty and oppression as a beacon to the world of its future. You see, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. But but right now, Christ reigns. He sits at at the right hand of the Father now. And we're supposed to be the people who proclaim that to the world, not only through our words, but through our lives. Because we're in the end game now. And when Jesus returns, there won't be any more time to repent. And so in the meantime, what we are, are builders. We're supposed to be builders bearing witness to the new In the midst of the old. What do I mean by that? Well, when you enter into the kingdom of God by faith and repentance, you are enlisted with a particular task. And this is your task creative rebellion against the powers and principalities, creative rebellion against the powers and principalities. See, Jesus came, lived and died to put to shame the powers of sin, death and the devil. And he did that through the cross. He 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 did that through through the very thing that was supposed to kill, shame and destroy him. And Jesus goes through death in order to defeat death. And he calls you and I into fellowship with him in that act. And that means that like Christ, by the spirit, you are called to creative rebellion. You may remember before I said, uh, there's no need for a temple in this new city. Well, that's because the Spirit indwells His people now in a way that He didn't in the Old Covenant. We're, we're, we're told, and Paul, Paul uses this language where he says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. When he says you, that's a collective you, the people of God are where God is present. Why you have the reference to the body of Christ? Because he's the head, you're the body. And so when you see the way, if you're looking for the ways that God works in the world, the most regular way that he works through the world is through his church. And a lot of people think that, you know, eschatology, so when I say eschatology, what I mean are, are, are talking about the last things in the last days. Um, a lot of people think that, uh, that, that that's just a uh, pie-in-the-sky thinking. It's one of the things that 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 Marx accuses uh, accuses Christians of. That basically all of this talk about the future basically dulls your dulls your sense of justice today. And and Richard and Richard Mao has this great he's got this great <laughs> this great conversation about uh pie about this accusation that we're just kind of pie in the sky thinkers. And he says he basically says, well, like if 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 there is pie in the sky, then like we should say that that's where the pie is. I mean we. If we want pie and it's in the sky, then we say that's where it is and we want it. But the issue is that pie is not just in the sky. These good gifts of the kingdom are not just what we're waiting for. They're also what we can experience here. And so that means that that when the world tells us that violence is the only way, you and I can respond with a future where violence is no more and a Jesus who demands that we reject it now. It means that when the world tells us that scarcity is the only option, then we, then you and I can bear witness to a future where there is nothing but Christ poured out abundance and a Jesus who's promised us everything that we need if we pursue his kingdom. That means that when the world tells us that actual turning from sin is impossible, we respond with a vision of a world where all things are made new, you, us, and everything, and a Jesus who healed the sick, who cured the blind, who raised the dead, and who redeemed the sinful. And so, brothers and sisters, you can, you, you can be creative rebels in your home, in your work, in school, and in your friendships. You can raise children where the most important thing that they learn is to love their neighbor. You can work with the mandate from Christ that, that, that your first priority is to justly love your neighbor. You can go to school with the assumption that your, that your fellow students are not competitors to be crushed, but rather people to be loved. You can see your friendships not merely as people who you hang out with, though hanging out is great. Love hanging out with my friends. But you can also see your friends as co-laborers, as brothers and sisters in arms, as partners and comrades in resistance against the powers and principalities of greed, lust, pride, and the rest. But here are a few examples of what I think about when I think about this creative rebellion. Things going on in the world right now. One is the work of Shane Claiborne, specifically the work of raw tools. So his work comes from the kingdom oriented commitment to the fact that, and this is what the Bible says, that the Christian has no biblical warrant to be engaged in violence ever. No whatabouts, and any whatabouts that are popping up in your mind are actually going against the scripture and against Christ's example. Every Christian is called to creative nonviolence in all of their interactions with one another with the world, with your kids, everywhere. And so what does that practically mean? Well, Shane looked to the book of Isaiah and he found the text, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And so he decided to beat guns into gardening tools. And that's exactly what they do. This is what kingdom creativity looks like. Faith in Christ that is not just believing in him, but believing what he says... And acting on it creatively. Here's a second example. I'm on the board of this, of this nonprofit called Iruka. And Junia Howell, she's a, she's a, she's a sociologist, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant woman. Uh, a few years ago, uh, her research was all over the news revealing how, uh, how racist housing appraisals are. And so she founded this nonprofit with a single concise vision to build a just economy, which is wild. So how's she doing it? Well, she's doing it through the housing industry, but not by reforming the housing industry, by creating a new one. So by building new systems of appraisal, new equations, all this kind of stuff, new systems of financing, new systems of savings bonds to directly invest in affordable housing for one's neighbors, even a new system for the government to equitably and sustainably calculate taxes. And and she she and her team operate with the fundamental kingdom-oriented commitment that a status quo of an exploitative economy is not the only way to think about housing, which is something that all of us need. It's not the only way to think about land, something that's ultimately meant for all of our flourishing, not just for the few to make profit. But the thing about alternatives is that people will only know that alternatives exist if they see them. And the fact of the matter is, is that the church is supposed to be we, we have been intended to be just that kind of alternative, brothers and sisters. The kingdom of God is, is described in Isaiah 60 as a city of abundance, overflowing with the wealth, culture, and resources of the world. And that's something, the church is, the church is not the kingdom, but we're an outpost of it. And so we're supposed to be a space where, where people of all kinds of different backgrounds repurpose the things of the world for the worship of the one true God. That is the church that the world needs to see. And so my question to you is this. How can you engage in creative rebellion this week? Where have you said there's nothing that can be done? And where do you need to pray to the Lord that he will show you what new things he would like to do by his spirit through you? My prayer for you this week is that Jesus' words would ring in your ears. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom is here. Live in God's reign now. Remember the promise of Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This is a call to creative rebellion. And brothers and sisters, if this is our future, then let's act like it now. Because we're in the end game. Now. Let's pray.